Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woo! <laughs> we are not doctors, we are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas discussed in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States, so these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different, so the things we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but they will give you some information to think about and research more. We want to remind you that your good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision when considering any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is in fact always yours. So Elsie Dog is um, chosen this moment to decide that she really needs to have a tug on the rope. So if you can hear that in the background. Yeah, her little mouth sounds and grumbles. <laughs> yeah. She's like, so. I don't know, you guys. I don't know what you're doing, but it's time to play. Yeah. Elsie's very helpful to have around. She prevents us from sitting down for too long at a stretch. <laughs> I feel very grateful to her for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, hey, this week we've got some shout outs. All right. We've got shout outs to Angelina, who found an AirPod at a thrift shop for $7. Nice. And Alexandra, who's interested in the business program. Oh, yeah. Katie, who's interested in the Lyme disease online course. Um, Nettle underscore farmer, who has questions about energetics and constitutions. Um, which I was pretty excited about. And also Nettle Farmer um, contacted us on Instagram about that. But you guys, don't hesitate to email us directly if you have questions. We're just right at info at commonwealthherbs.com. Yeah. So feel real free. Yeah. And, you know, we did just um, re- uh, release or make available our energetics and holistic practice course that's available in our online uh, course catalog right now. So mm-hmm. check that out. Yeah, it's really exciting. And if you're already enrolled in our foundations program, then you may have noticed that... It's there for you! There's material for you, yes. Woo! I get it. Um, And also, I wanted to give a shout-out to Citizen Cider, because they make an amazing Tulsi-infused apple cider that we discovered this week, or actually, I guess it was last week. Last week. And it is awesome. So, thank you, guys. Thanks so much for making that. Yeah, that that is some good stuff. That's some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cool. Um, Another announcement. We mentioned previously that we have a student we're working with right now who's currently incarcerated, and a number of you had written in to ask if there was a way that you could help out. So if you want to help, the time is now. Um, What we have to do is to transcribe and print all of our lessons, because we weren't able to arrange access to a computer uh, for him. So... That means that if you type fast, and if you would be interested in transcribing some of our lessons, this is a great way that you could help out. Uh, So if so, contact us, let us know. Um, Also, we'd like to send him some books. We sent him our book already, and a deck of Katya's herb cards to get started, along with um, the first couple of lessons, but we'd also like to send a few other books so that he has access to more than just our perspective. I think you might have heard us say before that we think everybody should have lots of teachers when it comes to herbalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd like to you know, make that happen here as well. So if you'd like to sponsor a book uh, for this student, then go ahead and get in touch with us. Um, I, or again, if you want to transcribe stuff, then reach out to us, and you can do that by info at commonwealthherbs.com. Hey, speaking of the herbal oracle and study cards, yeah. 
On Monday, I'm launching an Instagram giveaway of a deck of the cards, um, and I'm super excited about it. It starts on Monday, and I'll pick the winner on Friday. So if you don't follow us on Instagram yet, you should look us up at Commonwealth Herbs and watch for the giveaway details on Monday, but actually I'm sure I'll be posting details about it all week. Yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast and it's like Tuesday, you're not too late. There's still time. There's still time. Yeah. Cool. All right, so what's on your mind this week, Ladybird? Well, um, not last week, but the week before, I, I, I can't even remember what I was talking about. I just remembered that I said, oh, pretty soon I'm going to talk about elder caregivers because it was really on my mind. I mean, it's something that's kind of on my mind a lot, but um, a bunch of stuff had come up with students and clients around that too. So it was something I really wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I know that we had mentioned a little bit of this stuff back, way back in episode 18. Way back, six whole months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the misty days of yore. (laughs) Right? It was a long time ago. I mean, it feels that way. It feels like it was a long time ago. It feels that way. Yeah. Um, But I really wanted to expand on those thoughts. Um, I've watched... All three of my mothers, and by that I mean my own mother, uh, my mother-in-law, and my mother-in-law from a previous marriage, and also many other women go through this. And as my parents are getting older, it's definitely on my mind. I feel really lucky because my parents are 70, but you would definitely think they were at least 10 years younger than that. They're really active, and my father still can lift ridiculous amounts of weight. He's always been the strongest man I ever knew. I think because at age seven, he started shoveling coal after school and in the summer. But, um, you know, my parents are just really, really active. And we're, we're my brother and I are really fortunate about that. But sooner or later, that day is going to come for me, too. And it's, it's intimidating. Um, and it's intimidating because of the way that elder care happens in, in our country. So... I wanted to talk a little bit about women caring for their parents. And I know that there are men out there who care for their parents too, but it's, it's actually, it's much less common. 70% of all in-home family elder care is provided by women. And often when men help, it's not the same type of work. Um, Often men do like, and I, I know this even from, in my experience, men do more around the financial and legal sorts of things. And, and women are doing a lot more of the, Um, the care, the sort of day-to-day care. And that's different, I'm sure, in every family. But but the statistics are around women doing this. And um, I'm really lately in love with a website called daughterhood.org. And they answered the question around the the women and men issue really beautifully. Um, And they included this quote from Lisa Miller in which she had written in a pair in uh, in an essay that she published in NewYorkMagazine.com, um, and the the quote from her is, "Try harder." That's the message that women hear all around. Try harder to be happy. Try harder to be skinny. Try harder to be a good employee, mother, wife, daughter, friend. Try harder to feed your family nutritious meals and to give your child every possible opportunity. Try harder to find flow at work. Try harder to succeed. When there's a whole lot of trying without commensurate succeeding, then you have to start to consider that the game is rigged. And I really love that quote because um, that 
jives with my experience a lot. Um, she goes on to describe some common frustrating situations that people face in caring with their elderly parents. And at the end, she explains that facing these experiences, a typical woman responds, I failed. What's worse, the woman will perceive herself to have failed her parent. There should be a whole psychological therapeutic category for this. It's a toxic blend of self-reproach self-reproach, and a dysfunctional elder care system that warrants a website dedicated to women. And um, so, so this is why daughterhood.org focuses on women. Um, and But it's not like their resources can't be used by men or any other oh, yeah. people caring for no, their totally. parents. Yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But women really do get this message that if, if we were just thinner, our problems would be solved. And we're told all the time that whatever it is that's upsetting us is because we're not enough. And that stinks. So I think that, that you know, since most of, most of my clients are women and the clients that I've worked with who have, who have gone through this are women and that my experience in this society is as a woman... Um, I'm going to talk about it from that perspective. But if you're a man listening, I, I hope and I think this will still be helpful for you. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Um, there are some issues that seem to happen for every woman I've known engaged in the care of elderly parents. And the first one is chronic respiratory infections. Chronic infections really of any kind are sort of chronic low-grade inflammatory crud going on, but really in particular chronic respiratory infections has literally been an issue for every single woman that I've worked with in this situation. And although not every single one of them has had pleurisy, it is super common. And the funny thing is it is the only time that I see pleurisy. I'm sure that other people in this country get pleurisy, Yeah, but I, mean, I only sure. see it in, in women who are caring for elderly parents. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't, that's like, that is the elder care disease to me, <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. Um, so pleurisy um, is when you've had a bronchial infection for so long um, and not been able to attend to it that the inflammation finally dries out the lubricating fluid in between the layers of the sac that holds the lungs. And that sac is called the pleura. And those layers are lubricated because every time you breathe, they rub against each other. And if there's no lubricant, then that is ridiculously painful. So that's what happens when you get pleurisy, is that that it is ridiculously painful because that lubricant has dried up. But there's an herb for that. Um, And it's actually commonly referred to as pleurisy root. Um, Many people prefer to call it butterfly weed. It is Asclepius tuberosa. Um, which is a relative of milkweed, um, but it's... yeah, I think milkweed is like Asclepius syriaca. Yeah, so mil- mil- the the way that I remember it is that milkweed is pink, and pleurisy root is orange. The, the flowers, flowers. The flowers yeah, yeah, the flowers. <laughs> but they're very very similar. Um, we work with the root of this plant, and in a long decoction, maybe you mix it with cinnamon for flavor. It makes an enormous difference, really very quickly in this situation. Now. I'm going to make a strong decoction of this and drink like a quart a day, but it really is, is wonderful. And, and I'll say all three of my mothers had this as well as many clients. Um, but I have never seen a case of pleurisy go away while the elder parents were still alive. Um, all we've ever been able to do is palliate, palliate the situation. Um, but they literally had to drink the tea every day in order to breathe without pain. And, 
And I'm glad that they were able to do that. But it makes me want to back up a few steps. Mm -hmm. Because if we know that this is a really big problem um, in caring for elders, uh, then this is something that I really want to target as like a, a risk and I want to take action against it. But a huge problem for people caring with elders, especially if you still have children at home and you have a job and whatever else, is that there's just no time for you. And lots of people will tell you, oh, self-care. And honestly, that word has sort of become an indictment in our society. Um, yeah, it's and it's happened fast. Like, I think even just in the past, well, certainly the past 10 years, but... Maybe the last three or four years, there's been some weird thing where self-care has been, like, monetized. Yeah. And commodified. And it's really gross. It, it, those... Because, like, the things that are, that have, you know, like, advertisements or whatever, and they're framed in that way, that is not what we're ever talking about no, when we talk about self-care. No. You know, it's... But it's, <sighs> like, been monetized and commodified and also, like, obligated, you know, mm. like, what, don't you, don't you want to take care of yourself? Buy this thing, you know? And it's like, I, Have yeah. you meditated today? Yeah. <laughs> well, then you're just not good enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't want to go down that road at all here. But I would say that if there is one single thing that you as a, as a caregiver for, for elderly parents or elderly people you love make time for, it would be taking care of your lungs. Because if you end up with pleurisy, you're going to have to make time to care for it every day and you'll be in ridiculous pain. So since this is one that comes up so frequently, my feeling is better to squeeze out a little bit of time for this ahead of time so that you can at least avoid the part with the ridiculous pain. But it's not actually as hard as you think. It can be as simple as taking elecampane tincture a few times daily. That can really make a huge difference. And it's a thing that you can do really quickly. You don't even have to make a decoction. It's totally okay to take tincture. Um, elecampane strengthens the lungs. It fights respiratory infection. And frankly, if I get a respiratory infection, I do immediately make a big, strong decoction of elecampane root it does not taste good, just as fair warning. But I take a shot glass of the decoction every hour that I'm awake, and then I drink a nice cup of some other good tasting tea. But it really does the trick, and it's worth the peppery mud flavor. And maybe if you're an herbalist, that's appealing. But if you're not, I just want to be clear, it is a really weird flavor. You will kind of get used to it over time, but it is, it's worth it. It works so well that you won't care even if you never get used to the flavor. But the tincture doesn't taste that bad. And if you're just, if you're taking it sort of prophylactically as a self-care um, thing, you just need one or two droppers full a few times a day. And that flavor is over pretty fast because it's just, it's just the, the tincture. Um, so that is one super fast thing that I recommend. And another is a time steam. And in this case, you especially because I'm recommending that you would do this every day or as often as possible, you don't actually have to take the time to sit over it with a towel tent. Um, because here's my trick. If you are caring for elderly parents, by the way, this trick works if you have a sick kid at home from school um, or just a sick anyone in your household, this still works. But um, if it's cold and, cold and flu season, one thing that you can do is um, boil up a pot of water 
and then take it into the the room where your where your elders are or where any of the sick people are um or people you don't want to get sick and just set it on the dresser or someplace where they won't accidentally burn themselves put in the time and just let the steam fill up the room and you can do it when you're going to be in there doing some other thing like maybe helping them get dressed or helping them get up and get ready for the day and that way you're both breathing in that aromatic steam which it's not as intense as putting your head right over the pot, but as a preventative, it's really not bad. It's so much faster, and you're getting two for one. You're taking care of the elders that you're caring for and yourself because you don't want them to have a respiratory infection either. Like, that's also not good. Hmm. And and again, this is a quick thing, and that's totally key in this situation. If I give a bunch of solutions that take a lot of time, they're not going to happen. So I'd really rather something quick that's not perfect over something perfect that takes a lot of time. And if you're doing this every day, then it's it's okay that you're not getting the full intensity, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're still getting something. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you feel yourself coming down with something, that's the time to, to make a little bit of time to sit down for a time steam um, and really get your face right up to the pot and breathe it in deep a couple of times a day. Um, and even though it's hard to make time for that, just really take the care of your lungs seriously because that is such a, a place where people get sick. But if you're not sick and you're just doing it preventatively, it's fine to just have it in the room with you. Yeah. Um, okay, so those are some suggestions there. And then the next thing after respiratory infections, um, the next most common thing that I hear of is um, fear in the in the women in the daughters the adult daughters of developing dementia or alzheimer's themselves every woman i've ever worked with whose parent was affected by dementia or alzheimer's has been really afraid of developing it themselves and what that would mean for their own children eventually who would have to care for them and so i wanted to share some preventatives that can help here um, it's it's such a thing that, that I see women have so much anxiety around this issue. And there are things that you can do. And I mean, obviously, there's all the recommendations that you hear about staying active and play Sudoku and all that stuff. But A, you've already heard that. And B, you're too busy to play Sudoku. Plus, trying to navigate elder care is way more complicated than any mental games you can play. <laughs> so I think you're probably c- covered in that area already. Um But there has been some very interesting work around the concept of type 3 diabetes. Um, There have been a bunch of studies that show a strong link between diabetes and insulin resistance and the development of dementia and or Alzheimer's later in life. So while it's not always easy to keep a low sugar diet, especially when you're stressed and when you're short on time, um, it is really exciting that there are herbs that can help. So the first that I'm thinking about is cinnamon. Um, and then also adaptogens like ashwagandha and tulsi, all three of these can really help the body cope with sugar. And as a matter of fact, cinnamon is helpful enough that if you're going to start working with it in therapeutic doses, which is really only a couple of teaspoons daily, or if you're taking it by capsules, a couple of capsules. And so if you're going to start doing that and you're already medicated for diabetes, you need to very carefully check your blood sugar levels because it might change your levels enough that it affects the dose of your medication. So if you're taking diabetes medications, talk to your doctor about this before you start. But if you're not, 
Well, it's not unpleasant to add cinnamon to your daily routine and it can really help your body a lot. And yes, it is totally okay to take capsules. Um, but if you like cinnamon, it, then you can just add a teaspoon into your morning oatmeal or into some applesauce or whatever and have it that way too. Um, then those adaptogens I mentioned, ashwagandha and tulsi, um, both of these help the body with sugar and stress. And both have some interesting research around their effects on the hippocampus and being able to stimulate the regrowth of the hippocampus after damage, specifically damage caused by um, too much cortisol in the system, which goes right along with too much insulin in the system. So we don't have studies around other brain regeneration, but if we already know that something that's happening in the brain because of cortisol, and cortisol is a reaction to insulin, and, and that this herb can stimulate the um, repair of that, then I feel like it's not too far to imagine that it might be able to stimulate other kinds of repair in the brain as well. And even if it doesn't, it is still doing great things for the part of your brain that processes the experiences that you have and helping you get over stress and helping you deal more effectively with, with um, sugar that you eat. So all of those things are really, really excellent. And then Tulsi also, in particular, has such beneficial effects on mood and can really help you get through some tough times. Um, I don't mind Tulsi and ashwagandha in capsules for, for brain health, but I really do love Tulsi as tea, especially from the mood aspect. And... Um, Organic India doesn't pay me to say this, but they do make a very high quality Tulsi tea bag that you can get at the grocery store or on Amazon. And if you keep that handy in the kitchen or at work, then all you have to do is add hot water, which is a lot faster than, um, you know, getting out all the paraphernalia to make an involved herbal tea, which is awesome and good. And I wish everyone had the time to do that. But if you don't, Organic India has you covered. They have all... Um, different flavors of Tulsi tea, you know, with like Tulsi with rose and Tulsi with ginger. They're really excellent. Um, lion's mane is another, um, well, it's a mushroom. I was going to say it's another herb, but it's a mushroom. We sort of categorize it as an herb medicinally. That's okay. Our definition of herb is broad enough to include the fungal kingdom. <laughs> yes. It is fantastic for boosting brain and nervous system health. And although it is delicious in your dinner, this is another one that it's totally fine to take in capsules. Do you sense a theme here? I am definitely um, working on a plan here for a person who just does not have a lot of time. I really like the Fungi Perfecti brand. They also don't pay me to say that. Um, it's just the one that I use. Um, well, if anybody over there is listening and would like to start. Um... Yes, yes, feel free to. <laughs> I, I, would I would take sponsorship from them. They're sure. a great company. Yeah, Paul Stamets is, is really an amazing person. <laughs> um, lion's mane stimulates nerve growth factor. And that helps keep brain tissue healthy, helps with memory, helps with overall nervous system function. It is really pretty amazing. And actually, even if you're not worried about dementia and Alzheimer's, these are all herbs that can just help you get keep going through marathon times and help you function the way that you need to. So 
So even if that's not a concern for you, feel free to add these into your routine, especially when you're in the marathon of elder care. Mm. And then I also just want to say that it's really important to recognize that you can't do it alone. So if you are doing it alone right now, um, first off, uh, you're a superhero. And secondly, try to take a little time to figure out how you can get some help. Um, even though that will take a little bit of time, it's going to pay off and it'll really be worth it. There are programs in many states that provide visiting caregivers a certain number of days per month for free or at low cost. Um, and the local senior center may also have some options. Um, and frankly, if nothing else, maybe you have a friend in a similar situation and you could schedule like play dates for your parents, just like we did that with our children when, when we were young. Um, and if you don't have a friend in this situation, you might be able to find someone in your community and make friends, which could be great because frankly, it's good for elders to have community. It's good for those those yeah, who care. Still yeah, they still yeah. want to <laughs> hang out with people, you know, and um, and not always with their family, like, you know. Um, and it can also be really good for you to have somebody in your life who's also taking care of elder parents to, to talk about with and just sort of who understands what you're going through. And this can be kind of a, a fun way to um, work it out that everybody gets something out of the deal. Um, Which is kind of a recurring theme whenever we start talking about community as a solution to these sorts of problems. Yeah, yeah. It's never Absolutely. just for the one person. Absolutely. So the website daughterhood.org has a lot of resources that can help you find help. Um, and again, it helps all children helping aging parents, even if you're not a daughter. Um, and then the last thing that I'm thinking here is maybe some Hawthorne and Motherwort. Um, there are just such big themes in my life right now. But, but such amazing plants for supporting change and transition and the grieving process that's natural and appropriate and crappy um, when you're going through these kinds of things. So... I will try to put a photo in the show notes of um, of my beautiful new Hawthorne and Motherwort necklace that Hilary Camion at Quintessential Arts on Etsy made for me. It is so beautiful, and it's really fun to wear like my current favorite herbal formula as jewelry. So if um, if you want to wear your favorite herbal formula as jewelry, then check her out and tell her that I sent you. She has all kinds of plants and she can she can make whatever you ask for pretty much. So that can just be a little fun thing that can be a part of your experience. Yeah. Pretty great. It's a really lovely necklace. <laughs> well, hey, what are you going to talk about this week? Uh, well, I've been learning about botulism. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, basically what happened was one of our students in the online program uh, sent us a message in the discussion la last week or a little yeah. while back, yeah, um, just asking about botulism. And, you know, this is a thing that we've I've been asked about maybe like once a year um, yeah. and have usually given uh, various versions of the same answer. And I just wanted to take a minute and kind of like check my math and 
make sure I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Close well, enough, anyway. We, we so. have never experienced botulism. Right, yeah. I have not actually dealt with this, so I want to be clear that this is not based on uh, 100 case case files that I, <laughs> that I have stacked up for you. But I, Well, actually, I think that's pretty good, though. Like, every so often people do worry about, well, what if I make these tinctures, and what if they go bad, and what if I make someone sick? And yep. in 20 years, that has never happened. That's true. Yeah. So I think that's that's good. Like right, and that and that jives with with what I'm going to be saying about this. Um, so anyway, the the place that people most often ask about botulism as a risk is that they're they're making an herbal infused oil, and uh, they're aware that this is the kind of thing where it's most likely you know if it was going to happen, it would be in a situation like that because of the the environmental conditions that botulism needs or the, or the microbe uh, needs in order to thrive. So um, we'll come to those in just a moment. But basically the question uh, to start out with is what is botulism? Um, <laughs> and it's uh, the, the word botulism refers to the, the sickness. So you've, you've gotten sick and the kind of standard um, presentation and, and symptoms and all that um, is... It starts with a kind of a paralysis. It generally begins in your face um, and then spreads out from there to your arms and your legs. Um, when it gets really severe, uh, what happens is you, you get paralysis of the, the muscles of, of breathing. And so you stop breathing and then you... Uh, well, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, then ideally, you die, yeah. I guess. Well, yeah. Nowadays, what happens is um, it, like, it progresses slowly enough that... You know, people look at you, they notice something's wrong, they get you to the hospital, and if it's that severe, then by the time your breathing starts to slow down, they've got a, they've got you on respiration, like mechanical respiration, so. Okay, so that's good. Yeah. I, I mean, mean it's, it's, it's not, like, let's not do that. That sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. That does not um, sound like an experience I want to have. Right. Uh, the word, by the way, um, comes from the Latin uh, botulus, uh, which apparently means sausage. Um, and this is this is in reference to what Sausage you illness. what you look like when you have botulism. You can check out some photos, but you swell up, um, and all, like all the muscles in your face get kind of slack, and people look like they're asleep or like they're super super sleepy or intoxicated or something because the eyelids droop, but they're actually totally awake in there. They just can't like they can't retain an adequate degree of tension in the in the face. This muscles. sounds terrible. Yeah, it's not it's not fun. But, um, so the, the thing to start with, I, I guess, here to, to, to think about first would be, where does this actually come from? Like, what causes that? Um, and so, with botulism, you have a couple of different elements going on. You have the bacterium itself. So that's a bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. Um, and you might be thinking to yourself, that sounds kind of familiar. Um, it's in the same... Uh, I guess it would be genus as Clostridium difficile or C. difficile, um, which has gotten some attention in the last few years as a cause of really intractable, antibiotic-resistant intestinal infections. Um, these are the ones that people have um, been driven to do things like a fecal transplant from a healthy donor, mm -hmm. and that's like one of the few treatments that actually works. Um, anyway, so that's like in the same family, but it's, it's sort of a, a, a relative... Anyway, Clostridium botulinum, that's the, that's the microbe, that's the organism, but that's not what's actually damaging you or causing the illness. 
if you were, uh, and I don't advise this, but if you were to like take some Clostridium botulinum <laughs> critters and like clean them real good and give them a scrub and then eat them, you'd probably be fine, um, especially if you killed them first. But <laughs> what? Okay, the, the, that's all ridiculous. What, what really causes the problem is a toxin that the bacterium creates. And in this context, you know, the word toxin is used in a very specific sense. Um, it's a it's a type of protein that the bacterium creates, and it interacts with your nervous system in such a way that it shuts down some really important functions. Um, so I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But the um, about the bacterium, like many other bacteria, it's not super hard to kill it if you get it really hot or you really dry it out or you attack it with acids or bleach or other kinds of things like that. Um, so you can take the what they call the vegetative form, like if you're picturing a blobby little bacterium in a, in a microscope slide, that thing is pretty easy to kill. You can destroy it by boiling and... Um, you know, uh, disinfectants and... And this is this is where home canning came from, the, all the boiling and everything. Yeah, right. Um, and that, that'll usually take care of it. And there's there's a little, there's like some asterisks that we can come back to on that. But, but yeah, you know, or um, alcohol content um, is also helpful to kill this bacterium, especially if you get it above 70%. You know, at that point you can feel pretty confident that you've got them all. But that's what they call the vegetative cell of the bacterium. Um, but it has another form that it can take uh, called a spore. And that's sort of like a, like, <laughs> I don't know why this metaphor came to mind, but like if you take a, um, a video file and then you compress it down into a zip file, then you've saved a lot of space and you've like taken some <laughs> repeatable things and you've kind of squashed them down. I don't know, whatever. So you've, you've taken the bacterium, it condenses down into a spore, it kind of has a hard shell around it. It's, like, metabolically inert. Um, spores like this, they can survive in really extreme conditions. Um, there's, you know, not, not uh, to my awareness, the botulism critter, but there are critters that live in the desert, for instance, and they'll, like, go into a mummified hibernation state when it's really dry, but when it rains and then the water's flowing, then they'll sort of burst open and wake up and multiply really, really rapidly. And, you know, the botulism spore here, the, the Clostridium botulinum, they do something kind of similar. They're, they're dormant a lot of the time. They're dormant in the soil. Um, they're dormant in lots of places in the world, but they're not active until they get exposed to the right kind of conditions. Um, is, it's actually kind of amazing. Yeah. That it can do that. Life is, life is pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Um, so, but the real thing you actually have to worry about is the, is the botulinum toxin that these microbes produce. So, um, there are ways to defeat them, but it's a little, a little harder. So, uh, if they were exposed to sunlight, um, then they would get broken down within a few hours. Um, or if you heat them to relatively high temperatures, um... I'm seeing some numbers like if you heat it to 80 degrees Celsius, 176 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 minutes, or 185 degrees Fahrenheit for at least five minutes, things like that, um, then that will kill off the microbe. So, you know, that's below the boiling point. Um, generally, you know, boiling for a few minutes, if, if the internal temperature of, you know, your food or whatever, if it reached those temperatures, then that would be fine. Um... 
And that's why we have turkey thermometers. Right, because you got to get into the middle. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I've been saying, the bacteria, they wait until conditions are favorable for the spores to kind of enter the vegetative state and then to grow and to multiply and all of that. And that's the, that's the time at which they're going to be producing these botulinum toxins. Um, interestingly enough, uh, in the course of digging into this, I found that, that um, you know, um, because this is a protein, there's going to be a gene in the bacteria's genetic code that, that encodes for the protein, right? So all of the proteins that build up your body, somewhere in your genetic code, there's like instructions for how to build those. And it's the same with this bacteria. So, um, so they have those genetic instructions to do it, but we've discovered that the, the gene that encodes for that, that toxin protein is actually um, carried by a virus or what they call a phage. Um, it's a virus that infects those microbes. So maybe if you gave your Clostridium botulinum uh, microbe colony a um, elderberry an, syrup, an, an antiviral of some kind, <laughs> yeah, maybe that would solve this problem. Okay, so a bacteria <laughs> no, no, we're getting, we're getting, gets a virus, yeah. and that's amazing. Right. But um, if you're into genetic modifications and you're listening to this podcast, then hi, what are you doing here? Um, but also, <laughs> please don't get the idea to go mass produce um, non-botulinum producing clostridium microbes and trying to repopulate the soil of the earth with them because that won't work and it will have side effects. And yeah, that would be terrible. That would be bad. Although they are, there, there is a whole branch of science doing work like that. Yeah. And yeah. it falls in that category of just because we can, I'm not... Certain, maybe we should. I don't know, but I'm not certain that we automatically should. Yeah. Well, so the environment that this that this creature likes is uh, one that doesn't have oxygen in it. That's low salt, low acid, low sugar. Uh, sounds like some diets I know. Um, <laughs> and is at ambient temperatures or warm temperatures. Not too hot, but not cold either. Um, and also has an available protein source and, of course, some moisture. So getting all of those things together in the same place is common in certain environments, like, you know, an inch below the soil. But it's not super common, like, necessarily in, your, in the aerial parts of your garden, right? Like, mm. on the surface of your tomato plants, there's not really a whole lot of opportunity for botulism to be growing there. Um, so, you know... Let's think, talk a little bit about, like, what happens when people get sick with this, what that looks like. Um, you know, again, the symptoms are that kind of, that kind of paralysis. Um, you would experience blurred vision. You would have uh, drooping of the eyelids that's really obvious. Um, there can be nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and cramps and all of the sort of usual fun stuff. Um, but then if there is that, that difficulty breathing, that's, that's when it's, it's getting real serious. Um, interestingly, this pattern of effects where it starts in the face and then spreads outward from there, that has to do with how frequently those nerves fire. Uh, so your face is a hotbed of electrical activity. <laughs> um, so like the more frequently that nerves... And, and I say are... nerves, but it's specifically the what they call the neuromuscular junction. So these are the nerves that are... Um, going into muscles and giving them the signal to contract or, or slacken. Or well, so if else. you got botul botulism while you were at the gym, then it might... I don't think it would help you to work out harder, <laughs> no, yeah. But also, like, I, I specified the neuromuscular thing to say that this isn't, like, attacking all of the nerves everywhere in your body. It doesn't eat your brain, right? Um, it's specifically that, that particular type of nerve. 
Um, you know, if this actually happened and you went to the hospital, um, what they would give you is something called an antitoxin, um, uh, which sort of, again, it sounds kind of generic, but remember, in this context, a toxin is a particular kind of a protein, and an antitoxin is also a kind of a protein. It's one that kind of prevents that toxin from getting around in the bloodstream or, like, prevents it from binding to your neuromuscular junction receptor sites, um... An antitoxin is actually an antibody. It's something, uh, most of them are actually grown in a living animal and then harvested from their blood and then purified uh, and then injected into you. One of the problems that can come with this is a thing called serum sickness. Um, and so there's a variety of methods they use to try to combat that. Like first, like previously they would do little like patch tests and like with the botulism one, most of them are derived from horse um, from horses, uh, and so they would like test you out and try to see how you responded, and then if it seemed okay, they would give you the bigger dose. These days, there are v- varieties of the antitoxin that have had some of the of the some of the protein cut off um, the, uh, pieces of it that are more likely to cause this this serum sickness, which is basically like your body rejecting. It's kind of like an organ rejection situation. Yeah, this is so complicated. It is. I mean, it's it's amazing. That we can do this. Yeah, isn't that cool? Because I don't think there's an herb for botulism. Mm. No, I really don't think that there would be a whole lot of ways to solve this problem. I was I was sort of starting to um, say, like, I don't know, maybe if we have something that stimulates the release of acetylcholine, because that's what, what this is shutting down. Um, uh, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think it would be better to not get it. It would be better to not get it. And don't worry, that's not too hard. This is, like, the, the punchline here is going to be, don't worry, this is actually not hard. But, you know, I wanted to scare you a little first. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is like a horror a horror podcast now, suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, hey, you know, just in case you're worried, they do have um, human-derived antitoxin now um, and a couple of other recent advancements. So that's that's pretty cool if you end up in the hospital. But don't worry, it's pretty rare, right? And how do, how do we know how rare this is? Like, there are some diseases where we're not really sure, or we have sort of vague estimates, and we do our best. But with botulism, it's actually pretty solid numbers here. Because the CDC, the Alaska Department of Health, and the Canada Department of Health are the only sources of that antitoxin, um, in, at least in the United States and Canada. Um, because of that, any case where somebody gets brought to medical people for help is going to be recorded. Some might not be recorded, but those would be maybe they got misdiagnosed, or if you were mildly affected, maybe you don't even seek medical care. I think that's worth pointing out that sometimes this doesn't kill you. You know, like, with this and with a lot of things, it's kind of this kind of similar to when plants are labeled toxic, mm. and people think that always means it kills you if you look at it the wrong way, right? Um, but yeah, like, you could get just a little botulism. A little botulism. I'm just, I'm just mildly sausage-like right now. You know, no big deal. I think I, I would like no botulism. Thank yeah, you. That'd be, that'd be all right. So, you know, roughly there's about a thousand cases. <laughs> you said a little like a sausage and all I could think of was cocktail wieners. <laughs> Do you remember those? From like, I, whatever yeah. that, like time in the past was i do i have a story about that but it's not for the podcast okay <laughs> sorry guys you don't get to hear it no anyway a thousand cases worldwide per year more or less and about 150 or 200 of those in the united states um 65 of the cases are what's called infant botulism 
about 20% in wounds and about 15% foodborne. So these are referring to like the mode of your exposure. And infant botulism is by far the most common, um, basically because infants don't have the whole suite of defenses that we have. Um, they're more likely to get uh, colonization of the gut with the actual Clostridium botulinum uh, microbe. That does occasionally happen in, adult, in adults, but it's extremely rare, and it's only in people who are already um, immunologically compromised or have a really severe dysbiosis situation going on. Um, infants are just susceptible to this because they don't already have a whole complement of healthy gut microbes uh, in order to fight off the infection for them. So, and that, by the way, is also where the warning to not give infants honey comes from, uh, because it is possible for honey uh, to have uh, a few botulism spores in it. And in adults, older children, whatever, it's no problem. Your gut flora will suppress those from developing into full vegetative state microbes or producing toxin or whatever else. So you're fine, you can handle a few spores here and there, but your infants, you know, they, they run into problems. So that's, that's, that's the major reason for that warning not to give honey to, to infants under one year of age. Um, you know, there are some cases of food exposure, like I said, about 15% of the cases are, are food derived, and that's like the food you were producing uh, or making or preparing or whatever, it had some microbes in it. And because of the way you prepared it or, or the methods you used or whatever, they were allowed to uh, bloom, to, uh, to grow rapidly. And so then they made a lot of, of toxins and then you ate those later on and then you got sick. There are some cases of wounds getting infected with botulism. The majority of them are from intravenous drug use. Um, this was a big problem, um, or has been, and, and still remains a big problem in places where black tar heroin use is really prevalent. Um, but standard hygiene measures, uh, you know, would take care of that. So it's a, a, a the kind of problem that you know needle sharing, um, or or I'm sorry, that needle sharing would would spread, but. Um, clean uh, needle exchange programs and things like that. Yet, yet another on the long list of things that those can help to um, reduce the prevalence of. There's also a few cases, uh, very rare, of like inhalation, like you actually inhaled the microbes, but that pretty much only ever happens in a lab environment where somebody's uh, biosafety <laughs> procedures break down. Um, like, and then, oops. yeah, and then there, of course there have been a couple of cases of uh, Botox gone wrong. Um, so those are referred to as injection exposures. Uh, yeah, Botox actually is botulinum toxin, um, and they do use that to relax certain muscles in your face, uh, and then I guess you look younger. But uh, beware, sometimes that goes wrong. Okay, but don't worry, not too often. And plus, you're already beautiful. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of the breakdown on the epidemiology there. You know, once, like, about once a decade or so, um, there's a, a breakout, um, incident where a number of people, um, get sick. Um, there's been a few cases that were, were involving herbs in oil. I'll talk about those in a moment. Um... Actually, I'll talk about those right now. So I, I looked back through the CDC's surveillance reports um, about botulism from 2001 to 2016, 
Um, and I'll link to those in the show notes here so you can check those out. Um, basically, when you look at the foodborne cases, um, there were a few that were um, like people canning food at home and oops, you know, you got into some trouble. That's most likely to happen if you're canning a low acid um, food and especially if you're not using any additional, um, you know, uh, citric acid or um, other kind of um, other kind of acid in your canning process. Because um, again, if you have a, a relatively acidic environment in your food, then you're going to be fine. Um, or if you have a, a sufficiently salty environment, you're going to be fine as well. So for a lot of things, this isn't a major issue, but there's a few cases where you have to be extra careful. Um, there were a couple of cases I found in, in that review or, or in those documents about, like, there was going to be a big potluck or something, and somebody made a whole bunch of baked potatoes. Um, if you do that, do not leave them wrapped in foil at room temperature for a few days uh, and then serve them to people or mix up mix them up or puree them and add them to a soup or a chip dip or something like that. Um, because there were a few cases of that happening. Wow. One, a couple with potatoes and one with beets. Um, but think about it, right? You've got, you've got a vegetable that was growing in the dirt, uh, and so it could have had spores on it. Then you heated it up and then you let it come back down to room temperature and then you had it wrapped in the foil. So that provides the darkness and a little dampness, right? Yeah. There's some, some condensation on the inside there. So you've basically created the perfect environment, and yeah, that, that can get you. Um, there were a couple other cases I found really interesting that were basically people in prison making hooch, uh, making homemade alcohol, pruno, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, one, one uh, incident, uh, the people had been working with honey, uh, apples, potatoes, and tomato paste, notably from a bulging can, so it may have already had a, uh, an issue going on. But they were combined, they were mixed together, they were fermented in a sealed plastic bag, hidden under the bed at room temperature for three to five days. Um, it did become alcoholic, uh, and everybody who drank it got sick, and some of the people ended up um, getting on ventilators for a while. Um, in that case, I don't... Uh, well, there were a few that were like that, actually, so I think in one of them a couple people died. Uh, but again, right, don't provide the microbe with the ideal environment, right, with moisture, protein source, um, not too salty, not too acidic, all that stuff. Uh, tomatoes, by the way, are, are a case worth talking about here. Most people consider them to be acidic, but they're sort of just barely on this side of the pH scale when they're pureed that botulism still can grow in them. Um, so be aware. I feel like saying, what about apples? What about blueberries? Like, like as if you're going to have this all just memorized. But... Yeah, I don't quite. <laughs> um, but I'm now super curious. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, there were also a lot of cases in Alaska. Um, and those seemed primarily to be coming from people doing home fermentation of oily, fishy kind of stuff. Um, and that also seems to be a place where this is more likely to happen than with other types of... I was wondering what was special about that Alaska's... Yeah, Alaska and California. I think California is more with infant cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not... I haven't... I don't really know exactly what it is about California in particular that makes it so much more prevalent there, but, um, 
it's like Alaska and then California and then pretty much everybody else. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but there are also a couple of high-profile cases. There especially were a few back in the 80s um, of uh, outbreaks of botulism uh, that were traced back to, uh, and this surprised me, to preparations of garlic in oil. Right, so you had um, some garlic cloves, and they were infusing into oil, and then uh, later on, people used that like as a condiment, like in a mixed dish or something, and then a bunch of people got sick. There were outbreaks in 1980 and 1985, and you know, a couple of the years. That um, does surprise me. I would have thought that wouldn't be possible. Right. Yeah. I would have thought the garlic would be enough to take care of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um. In the cases that I saw, these were um, they were commercial products, uh, and they were garlic, and they were in oil. And at least one confirmed that it was in soy oil. Um, probably all of them, you know, uh, I didn't have all the details, but um, but worth noting that these were um, uh, again like 1985, 1989. Um, and in 1989, the FDA put out a ruling, um, and they ordered that all commercial garlic and oil preparations that lacked an acidifying agent be removed from the shelves. I'm not old enough to remember that. Maybe <laughs> I should ask my dad about it, since he, he's worked in grocery stores for his whole life. So, yeah. Um, hey, Dad, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> um, but and so now, uh, you know, anything like that uh, is gonna is gonna be mandated to include an acidifying agent, um, and that's usually just you know like powdered citric acid or something like that. I have seen recipes for for making oil infusions at home that recommend adding lemon juice or vinegar, uh, like one tablespoon per cup of oil. Um, I feel like that would be a little odd, uh, yeah. and it wouldn't integrate together very well. Um, but you know, at the same time, the lemon juice itself or the vinegar isn't going to grow microbes either. So I don't know. Anyway, there, there are recommendations like that, that you'll see here and there. And then obviously, you know, if something looks bubbly or, or cloudier or has a terrible odor or is turning a weird color that you don't want it to, then that's probably not a good news. But the other element I want to point out here is that in all these cases, these food products were unrefrigerated for several months before they were they were opened before they were used. Um, so there were there were like some of the conditions set. Oh for right, because to, it has to be warm. Yeah, it has to be has to be warm to bloom. So, you know, the thing I want to take away from this though is that for for us herbalists over here. None of those cases really sound very much like a standard oil infusion or tincturing method in terms of the amount of time that your plant matter spends in a uh, no-oxygen, warm, moist, um, dark environment, right? An oil infusion has some of those, but not all, and a tincture has some of those, but not all, so usually you're going to be safe. So my takeaway, or my, my read on this, is that uh, botulism contamination is potentially possible but extremely unlikely in tinctures because the alcohol will kill the actual bacteria um you know provided it's above 20 percent it's going to get more effective with increasing concentrations if it's above 70 percent that would be definitely safe at least in terms of the bacteria now if there was a lot of bacteria on your plant matter to begin with and they were in an environment that enabled their growth right anaerobic warm moist dark with some protein there, then they could have already produced a bunch of botulinum toxin, 
and that would stick around until you heat or expose your your tincture to light, which is exactly what we don't do when we're yeah, true. when we're making a tincture. But like you're not going to start out with plant matter that's been in a no oxygen, warm, moist, dark environment, right? Like you're not. I mean, unless you were trying to ferment something. Before. I mean, so, yeah, some of your roots would have been in that environment, but I mean. When uh, let's say when we tincture roots, we pretty much if we're going to do it fresh, yeah. right? You would dig it up. You would probably wash it a bit, right? And it's not like the botulinum spores are like crawling their way inside of the root. They would be on yeah, the soil on the surface. the surface. So okay, maybe and I usually scrub them pretty good because you want to get the dirt off, and I use like a vegetable brush or whatever. Yeah. And right, so you know then you might uh, you might chop them up. You might let them wilt for a little while. Let some of that moisture evaporate. Then, you know, if it's fresh plant matter you're working with, you're going to use really high alcohol anyway. Mm. Um, so, you know, all told, this is, this is fairly unlikely with tincturing. Um, I've never heard of it in a tincture, um, and never, I've never even heard of, like, a rumor of one. I've heard rumors of people talking about oil preparations with botulism, yeah. but tincture, it's just, it's just never come up. So, you know, there's, there's little likelihood of a, a, of a substantial infection in living plant matter or dried plant matter. Um, it's, it's just extremely unlikely with that. Now with oils, infused oils we're talking about here. So this is, you take plants, you put them into a jar, you pour in some olive oil or something like it, you infuse it and then, and then you work with that. It is a possibility, but it's very rare. Um, like I said, I've heard rumors of this here and there, but I, I can't speak to any like first or second degree cases uh, of that actually happening. Um, the... The bacteria require that anoxic environment, which an oil does provide, right? But they also require water to bloom. And ideally, you don't have water in your oil, right? This is like one of the first things we're concerned about for this reason, and not just for botulism, but for other critters as well, right? Yeah, Yeah, mold, whatever else. So we don't want that to grow in there. And so we try to prevent water from persisting in our oil infusions, whether we start with dried plant matter or whether we warm the oil while we're infusing the plants so that they're moisture can evaporate before we, you know, strain it and jar it, whatever, we're going to be taking steps to prevent that very thing. So several conditions would probably need to be met for botulism to grow in your herb-infused oils. Like you were working with fresh plants and you used a no-heat method in a sealed container, which, you know, the reason I specify is that allows the moisture to stay in. Mm -hmm. Um, And you had herbs that were insufficiently antimicrobial to... Uh, to fight off the microbe. Although, that may not matter that much given that there was the garlic thing. Yeah, Yeah, so... Um, Okay. Uh, You know, you could add some... You could add some kind of acidifying agent to your oils if you, just, were, if you were really worried. That doesn't appeal to me at all. I mean, unless you were going to turn it into a salad dressing. Mm. I think I would prefer to put it in the refrigerator. Right, yeah. If you keep it in the fridge, um, then that will definitely slow that down and, um, you know, reduce that. And, and to be clear, we don't keep our oils in the refrigerator and we've never had this happen. Right, yeah. But if you were worried, you could do it. And, you know, again, contamination is usually pretty obvious. And I say that advisedly, right? So there, there's it, there's actually like six or seven different varieties of, of the Clostridium um, botulinum microbe, and they produce slightly different variants of this, of this protein, this toxin. Um, but most of, or some of them, some of them make obvious signs if they're growing in a food. Like they'll cause... Um, 
Well, they'll all cause gas release. So if it's a sealed container, there will be bubbling or there will be high pressure inside. Um, so that's one thing to always watch for. Uh, but some of the versions of, of Cluster D and Botulinum will also make it smell funny or turn weird colors or you know look slimy or this or that. There are a few variants, though, and these are the ones people worry about, that are undetectable, um, aside from the, from the gas and the pressure thing, but otherwise undetectable. So that scares people. But I would point out that if, cl- if Clostridium botulinum is growing, there's probably other things that are growing there as well. Um, and so usually there's going to be some visible or sensory sign of badness Mm-hmm. Uh, for you to detect some discoloration, some bad smell, some slime, whatever else going on. I would have to believe there would at least also be mold happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, the basic takeaway is as long as you stay away from creating a, a, an, a an ideal environment, <laughs> then you should be fine. You should be fine. But I invite... Please, please make your, op- your environment suboptimal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be the way to go. And again, you know, in... For a variety of reasons, that suboptimal environment for the microbe is better for your herbal extract. So Mm. you were probably doing that anyway. Now, if anybody out there has a documented case or an it-happened-to-me case of an herb-infused oil product, like an an infused oil or a salve or whatever, or an herbal tincture uh, causing botulism, I would love to hear about that. I would want to ask you a pile of questions. I would be like, "Was was it foodborne? Was it a wound problem? Was it in an infant? Do you know how the, the herbal product was made, like step by step with all the details? How was it stored? How was it consumed? How was it applied? How much did they take? How severe was it? You know? Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, I'm super curious. So if, uh, if you have a story like this, or if you know somebody who you think hinted at having one at some point, chase them down for me. Um, I would love to, to get a, a better sense of uh, this kind of thing from, from the herbal community perspective. Uh, but you probably don't because it just doesn't happen very much. there just aren't very many, yeah. Um, But again, I wanted to do this because people do ask and you may have been wondering or, you know, if you start teaching classes, somebody might ask you later on. Um, I feel like this one is pretty nailed down, but again, I would be happy to hear your experiences and your information about it. Yeah. It's definitely something that I am never concerned about, Hmm. but now I feel very confident in my lack of concern (laughs) keep up those good manufacturing practices people that's right it'll be all right okay well that's it for us this week um i don't think we have any other any other announcements just check out the instagram for the herb card giveaway yeah watch for that yeah cool and we'll be back next week see you then bye